Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. It's good to be back right here, and it is good to give thanks to the Lord through song and with you all. If you are new this morning, um, I was diagnosed with esophageal cancer back at the very beginning of the summer on June 4th and spent June and July five and a half weeks of chemo and radiation. That went as well as I could hope it to go. I feel like I'm at halftime right now, and a second half is just around the corner. Uh, on September the 3rd, I will have another PET scan just to see how everything's going in there. On September 7th, I'll have another endoscopy where they will go in and take a good look along with an ultrasound at how everything responded to the chemo and radiation. And then they've penciled me in for September 15th or September 22nd for surgery. And it'll be fairly major surgery. I'll be in the hospital for a week and then four and a half or four to six weeks on a feeding tube. And so it sounds like a whole lot of fun for the fall that's coming up. God is good. He's good all the time in the good times and in the hard times. And no matter what he has for me and for my family, we want to trust him. And so that is our greatest prayer, that you would pray that God would give us great, great faith. Thank you for your prayers so far and all of your support, all of your love, all of the meals, the cards, and so much more. Lord willing, I'm going to preach for the next five weeks. I've got five Sundays before my surgery. And so for these five weeks, what I'd like to do is look at the book of James. James is five chapters long. We're not going to look at every verse, but my plan is to take one passage from chapter one, one passage from chapter two, three, four, and five. And appropriately, maybe, this morning's passage, James chapter one, verses two through 12, is on trials. James's words there in verse 2 are famous. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, right? But when. Trials and hardships, pain and difficulty are not electives that we can either choose or not. They are required curriculum for all of God's people. And when trials come, when hardships come, you and I are forced to respond. How will we respond as God's people, as his children, when he brings hardship our way? Of course, there are many ways we could go that we hope not to into anger and bitterness, turning away from God rather than to him, Forgetting in the midst of our hardship how very good he is to us now and will be forevermore. Maybe the worst of which is that we would simply just give up. Coming to believe that God is no longer worthy to be trusted. He's no longer worthy of my devotion. And that we would pick up our proverbial ball and go home. Be done with discipleship to Jesus Christ. 
James is going to call us to something entirely different, something wonderfully different. In verses 2 down through 12, and he is wonderfully consistent with what we know from Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. What James will say here is nothing new. Paul will put it like this in Romans chapter 5. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. Or Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he talks about the incredible salvation that we have come to know by the mercy of God and the eternal future that we have, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, if necessary, for a little while, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or the author of Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with us as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of lights and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. We're going to find similar things in James today. If you'd like to underline in your Bible, maybe you could do this. In verse 2, consider it all joy. I'm going to say rejoice. In verse 5, let him ask of God. I'm going to say pray. Verse 9, he's to glory in his high position. So I'm going to say glory. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. I'm going to say persevere. So first, how should you and I respond in the midst of our hardships and trials? Let's rejoice God is wonderfully at work in your trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, difficulties, hardships, suffering, pain. And it is various, literally multicolored. Trials come in every shape and size, and we could go around the room, and for however many number of people are in this room, we would have that number of trials that we as God's people, as his children, go through. And we seemingly encounter these. Literally, we fall into them. It's not necessarily that we're looking for them, but we encounter them. They come our way. 
One put it like this, any day and at any time of the day, some experience of trial is, as it were, lying in wait, ready to leap on us so that we might cry out in surprise, what is this? And in perplexity, why has it happened to me? May 19th, did you fix me? Well, unfortunately, no. We found a tumor. Kind of stumbled into that one. Somewhat fell into that one, encountered that one. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I want to say this almost as a side note. On the one hand, we might not be prepared for the trials that come our way. They surprise us. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, let's, if you will, be prepared. None of us are special and will be exempt from the hardships of life. It's a good reminder to me again. My life is so wonderfully blessed. Things were going so wonderfully well. And then, boom, I was reminded again, James 4, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We can be so presumptuous with how our lives are not only going, but how they're going to go. And so I would say to all of us, let's be prepared by making spiritual investments today to help strengthen us for whatever God might bring our way tomorrow. Continue to gather with God's people. Get into community with a smaller group of Christians, whether it's a community group or a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study. As I like to say, get out of the rows and into circles where you can pray with one another and share one another's burdens. Continue to spend time with God and His Word, taking your roots deep into Him. So that when trials come, they may take us by surprise, but only for a bit. We can stand and be strong in the midst of them. We live in a fallen world, right? Since Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered in, everything was broken. The whole of creation groans until the full redemption and so there is sickness and pain and death and a host of various other kinds of trials that all people go through and God's people go through. And as his people, we live with a God-entranced worldview. We know that he is in and behind our trials, that he is in absolute control of all that happens to us in our lives. We believe in a pervasive providence 
that God not only creates all things and sustains all things, but he guides all things to their appointed end. Even the hardships and trials that come into our life. We think of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers in hopes of never being seen again, who was falsely accused and thrown into prison and more. And at the end of it all, he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, and indeed they did. But God meant it for good. Joseph had a God-entranced vision of life. God be- or Joseph believed in a pervasive providence that even as his brothers were committing evil deeds against him, God was at work in and through that to accomplish his saving purposes for his people. Or Job, who went through terrible trial. The kind we would not wish upon any said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He believed that the good things that came into his life and the adverse things that came into his life were both from the hand of God. We think of Jesus Peter said it like this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was killed by the hands of evil men. And all of it according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Y'all know that one of my favorite hymns is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it hit me this week as I was thinking over this sermon and that song came to mind. From line one, William Cooper affirms a pervasive providence even in the midst of the hardest of times. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. He's in it. He's working. That's what James wants us to see. How in the world can we consider it joy? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James believes that God is at work in our trials to mature us, to produce things in us, things like endurance. God puts us through the fire so that the dross can be burned off and so that we can be strong, beautiful, useful. Remember this old hymn, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume your gold to refine. God puts us in the fire to burn away the dross, to strengthen our faith, to produce in us endurance, 
perseverance, staying power, the ability to trust him in the midst of hardship. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo, I like what he says here. This hupomone, that's the Greek word for perseverance or um, endurance. This hupomone, this mone to remain, hupo, underneath, is not a meek, passive submission to circumstances, but a strong, active, challenging response in which the satisfying realities of Christianity are proven in practice. God wants strong, mature, persevering, enduring children, just like you and I want for our children. And so what do we do? We put them through the fire. Clean your room. Take out the trash. Whatever it might be. And they don't like it. And they grumble. We want them to persevere in the midst of that and grow character out of those sorts of things. And James seems to believe that becomes a sort of gateway to even more Christian spiritual maturity. Let endurance that was produced in the midst of the trial have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that you and I would go beyond even endurance, perseverance, steadfastness to grow in all of the Christian virtues that God wants to produce in our lives. Oswald Sanders' wonderful book, if you've never read it, you ought, Spiritual Leadership. He shares this poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Sometimes we don't seemingly know what God is about. But he is about molding us, conforming us, transforming us into men and women who trust him, who endure in faith, and from that go on to even greater spiritual maturity. He does it through trials. So let's rejoice. Let's rejoice, even in the midst of our hardships, that God is at work doing his thing. Now, James seems to know that that's not always easy. That in the midst of our trials, sometimes we need, desperately need, wisdom. And so in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you're in a trial, and it's hard, and it's painful, and You're reeling. You're confused. You're not sure what to do. Pray 
God is wonderfully available in your trials. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom is that ability to apply what we know to the problems of our lives, to respond appropriately. J.T. or G.A. Uh, excuse me, J.A. Motyer. I like what he says here. It's a little bit broader perspective, but if we say to someone, he knows his Bible really well, so far we have described a knowledgeable person. But if he also knows how to use his Bible to understand life and the world around him, to guide his conduct and the conduct of others in the maze of life's problems, then knowledge has passed over into wisdom. And that's what we want, isn't it? Especially in the midst of our trials, when we may be confused, when we may be surprised, when we may be caught off guard. We're not exactly sure how we're meant to respond. We want wisdom. We want to know how to use our Bible to understand life and the world around us, to guide our conduct and the conduct of others in the midst or the maze of life's problems. James says if we'll ask him for it, he'll give it. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. The Greek here is a little interesting. It says this, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. It's a little cleaner maybe to translate that. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously. James calls him the giving God. How wonderful is that? The word seems to have that word generously there, the idea of singularity. It's as if he has nothing else to do. When you're in the midst of a hardship and you're not sure what to do and you need wisdom, pray and ask God for it and he gives to all as if he's got nothing else to do. You're in his sights. You're his child. And he wants to help you through it. Not that he's going to take it away, but that he will give you wisdom as you and I work our way through it and seek to be faithful to him and he gives without reproach Boy, how wonderful this is it simply means he doesn't reprimand us for past failures as he thinks about giving us wisdom god i'm going through this trial and i i want to be faithful to you would you please give me wisdom and help me well i would but Aren't you glad he gives generously and without reproach? He sees you. His eye is on the sparrow. He knows where you are. He knows you need help. He's thrilled that you would look to him. And he's there. He gives to all generously and without reproach. It'll be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I think James simply means by that, in the midst of your trials, if we're doubting the goodness of God, if we're doubting 
the wisdom of God, if we're doubting whether or not God is for us, if our, if our posture towards God is one of angst because of what he's allowed into our lives, we doubt whether he's good, we doubt whether he's wise. If he was good, if he was wise, if he was for me, this would never happen to me. That kind of doubting, I think James would have us to put aside and we would trust, we would ask in faith that, God, you are good. You are wise. You are for me. You are generous. You do give wisdom to your children who ask. I thought of these verses this week just as I thought about this giving God his, his responsiveness in the midst of our prayers. We looked at this one with Mark last week, two weeks ago. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You ever get anxious? And do you ever not seemingly experience the peace of God? Paul said, pray. Pray. One of the great questions, I think, for all of us is, have you prayed about it? Or Peter, in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I think, I think the only way to do that is by talking to him about it. That's how you cast your cares upon him. Lord, this is what's going on. This is what I'm feeling. Would you help me? And Peter says, he cares for you. But Jesus, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who finds... And he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your father, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So brothers and sisters, as we go through hardships and trials, let's rejoice. God is wonderfully at work in the midst of them. And let's pray. He's wonderfully available in the midst of them. Verse 9. Let's glory, exalt, because God has wonderfully delivered you from the worst of troubles. I think that's what's going on in these verses. I'll try to explain myself. You can... See what you think. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. I think we're still here in the context of trials. And so the humble circumstances is when you and I as a child of God are going through a trial. Explicitly here, it's probably Christians who are experiencing poverty. He's going to contrast them in verse 10 with the rich. Maybe it's the rich taking advantage of the poor. 
You'll see this theme, it comes up again and again in the book of James. But I think we could broaden it, not just to those who might find themselves in poverty, but any of God's children who find themselves in humble circumstances, in a trial, in a hardship, in a heartbreaking, confusing circumstance. What do we do? We glory in our high position. One put it like this, I think they're right. The Christian presently enjoys an exalted spiritual status and has the sure hope of participation in the glorious eternal kingdom of Christ. That is our high position. It's the exalted spiritual status that we now enjoy, even though we may be going through a very difficult time. The exalted spiritual status we now enjoy and the hope of participation in the glorious eternal kingdom of Christ. One of the books I've been reading this summer, read it years ago, and it is an absolute classic. John Stott's The Cross of Christ. If you never read that one, you need to read it. There's a section called The Achievements of the Cross. One of the chapters is the salvation of sinners. And he looks at four different images of the cross and of what Christ has achieved for his people. Propitiation. Redemption. Justification. Reconciliation. Because God has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to live, to die upon the cross, as a substitutionary death in our place and for our sins, we, our sins have been taken care of. Because of our sins, God's wrath was meant for us, but Jesus took our place and became a propitiation in his blood. He took the wrath of God in our place and for our sins, and so God's wrath has been propitiated. It's been satisfied. It's been taken care of. Which means now, as a child of God, you and I don't ever have to face the wrath of God. Jesus took it for us. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back out of slavery. We were in slavery to Satan, to sin, and to death. And Jesus comes along, and he pays the ransom price himself. He sheds his blood and gives his life as the ransom price to buy us back out of sin and slavery to sin into the freedom of life with Christ. We have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. We have been justified. Because of our sins, we are guilty before God. We deserve his condemnation, but Jesus has come and Jesus has died in our place and for our sins. And because of that, we have been forgiven of our sins and the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to our account. We have not been made righteous in justification, but we've been declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus, which is counted to us. 
Therefore, God is for us. He's not against us. He's 100% for us. He accepts us. Not because we're righteous, but because His Son is righteous and everything His Son accomplished is given to us as a gift and adoption or even reconciliation. That we were enmity with God, but because of Christ, we have now been reconciled to Him. We're part of His family. He loves us. Those things are true. What a high position we have. Not only those current, present realities, but the sure hope of participation in the glorious, eternal kingdom of Christ. We also have hope-filled promises. As Peter would say, we've been born again to a living hope through the redemption which is in Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The worst of our troubles was sin and our separation from God, and he has taken care of that. We have a high position, even as we go through our trials. Nothing on earth, not even death, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. We don't have time. There's an interpretive problem here. We don't have time, but here we go. Is this rich man a believer? Most of the commentators seem to think that he is. That It's this idea, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich brother, that's not in the Greek, the word brother is not there with the rich man, but, but does he have these in parallel? He may, he may so. The rich brother is to glory in his humiliation. If that's the case, that even when things are going really, really well in our lives, and in this particular case, we're a rich man and He's got no worries in the world, even as a believer, when things are going so well. When trial comes and it humbles you, you glory in that. It's a good thing for us sometimes when things are going so well for us and we're just as good as good can be, and then God humbles us through a trial. We glory in that because it reminds us that all of our riches and all of our stuff means nothing. Like flowering grass that pass away, the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, flower falls off, the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I'm inclined to think, and not a lot of the commentators are with me, but this rich man is an unbeliever. He's the one who is oppressing this man of humble circumstances. He thinks he's something else with all of his riches. He's trusting in them. And James is saying the rich man is to, if you will, glory in his humiliation. Because as he trusts in his riches, he is destined for judgment. Flowering grass, he will pass away so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. 
Don't trust in your riches, Cinco Katie folk. No matter how much you've got, we are all sinners before God. We need salvation through Jesus Christ, and when we cling to him, we know the high position, even in the midst of our trials. So let's glory, and then finally, verse 12, we need to move quickly. Let's persevere, because God wonderfully rewards faithfulness in trials. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's that same word from verse 3, endurance, hupomone. Blessed is the man who endures under trial, perseveres under trial, remains steadfast under trial, does not grow angry and bitter towards God, does not turn away from God, does not quit, and go home, but who perseveres. That one, James says, will receive the crown of life. That little phrase is found one other place in a similar context. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is talking to the church in Smyrna, which was going through much hardship trial, he encouraged them, Jesus called them to be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. So it seems this is eternal life. Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. You may even die. But as you trust me and persevere and endure in the midst of your trials, and even if you should die, don't you worry, I'm going to give you the crown of life. It's a good thing for you and me to contemplate the, the inheritance that awaits us. It can sustain us and strengthen us when times are difficult. Paul would say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. wonder what that's going to be like. Quoted it earlier, but Peter says we're looking forward to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. We're going to close with a song, but before that, I want to close with one last quote. This one's been a favorite of mine for years. I had it memorized years ago. Let it slip. And as I've gone through this hardship this summer have tried to put it back to memory, so I'm going to try again. But I got it right here if I need help. Listen to this one, y'all. My soul, reject not the place of thy prostration, 
it has ever been the robing room for royalty. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the place of their prosperity. They will tell you it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. He will point you to the sacrifice of Moriah. Ask Joseph. He will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune to his dangers in the Nile. Ask Ruth. She will bid you to build her monument in the fields of her toil. Ask David. He will tell you that his songs came from the night. Ask Job. He will remind you that God spoke to him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter. He will extol his submission to the sea. Ask John. He will give the palm to Patmos. Ask Paul. He will attribute his inspiration to the light that struck him blind. Ask one more. The Son of Man. Ask him from whence has come his rule over the world. He will tell you. It was the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. Thou too will be garlanded by Gethsemane. Thou too, my soul, shall be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup thou fain would pass from thee will be thy coronet in the sweet by and by. The hour of thy loneliness will crown thee. The day of thy depression will regale thee. It is the desert that will break forth into singing. It is the trees of thy silent forest that will clasp their hands. You're going through a hard time. You're going through a trial. You're going through something that's painful. If you're not, you will be, right? God's at work in the midst of it. Do not reject it. God is at work. Doing what he will in your life and in mine to help us to endure, to help us to mature, to help us to be more like Christ. And so we remember him who endured the cross for us. Who when the suffering and the pain and the trial got hot, he did not turn and run, but went fully to the cross, despising the shame, and took for us our sins upon himself so that in him we might be forgiven and free. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, may this be your day. Your salvation is not something you earn through your good behavior. It is something provided to you as a free gift because of God's great love and what he did through his son Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary and his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is available to any and to all who will humbly come to Jesus. If you want to learn more about that, please come and grab me. I would love to visit. Let's pray.
Father, as we go through hardships and trials, give us your grace to rejoice, to pray, to glory, to persevere, to rejoice because you are wonderfully at work, to pray because you're wonderfully available, to glory because you have wonderfully, wonderfully taken care of the worst of our troubles, to persevere because you will wonderfully reward those who do. And we thank you for Jesus who endured the cross for us, who took the trial and the trouble of what the cross would be. He didn't run from it, he ran to it because of his great love for us. As Forrest prayed earlier for especially for our brothers and sisters in Haiti, especially our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We know the church in Afghanistan has already been threatened. Not only have they endured much, but they may be about to endure much, much more. Jesus, as you would say to the church in Smyrna, might you, through your powerful spirit, say to each and every one of those brothers and sisters, do not fear. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Help them, give them faith, give them strength. Provide, protect, and help them be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.